It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. And welcome back to a special episode of Everything Will Be Okay. Today, I'm joined by a brilliant war and State Department correspondent, a man of incredible courage and humility, and a dear member of our Fox News family. Benjamin Hall has an incredible career. He reported around the world It is outstanding everything that he's accomplished. He mastered the art of delicately sharing the stories of people who often did not have the resources to do so on their own. He went to them to tell their story so that we could know what was going on. And he did this with the support of his team, with humility and empathy. His gift of storytelling is breathtaking, and he's exceedingly charming. After experiencing a life-threatening attack while covering the war on Ukraine in March of 2022, Benjamin wrote his memoir, Saved, to detail his recovery in the moments leading to the horrific event that would ultimately change his life. He dedicates this book and the stories he shares to his two colleagues who lost their lives that day in Ukraine, Sasha Kushinova and Pierre Zakrevsky. Benjamin joins me to share his story. Benjamin Hall, now I get you to myself, and I get you longer than the others who have their own shows on primetime. I saw you on Jesse Waters, of course. It was a great interview. Yes. And you've done a lot of media over the past two weeks, and we are grateful for that. You are the author of a best-selling book, Saved, A War Reporter's Mission to Make It Home. I brought it with me, and I have this idea that after we talk for a little bit, I'm just going to randomly open it up to one of my dog-eared pages, of which I think there are, I don't know, 90% of the pages are dog-eared. And the notes that I took, and I'm just going to randomly ask you about that page. Good. Okay. So, but before we do that, let's set the stage for listeners who might not have seen you on the shows yet um, on Fox News. This book is your story up to now. You're only 40 years old. Yep. You have a long life ahead of you. But you had this very traumatic experience as a war reporter. And you've just passed the anniversary of the bomb that attacked you and our colleagues. So maybe just set the stage for people of how you are now here in the United States at Fox News trying to tell people about this book. Well, in many ways, this is a homecoming to me. Um, I've been working at Fox for about seven years now, and we've been around the world. We've been covering conflicts wherever they happen. The phone rings and we're trying to be the first people on the ground. And uh, about a year ago, we were in Ukraine. Russians uh, had recently invaded the country. And of course, that's where we needed to be. We needed to be right on the front telling the story of what was happening there. And we'd covered the, the war for about two weeks. And the Russians were about to take over Kiev, the capital city. They were surrounding it anyway. And that was the day that we decided to go out. Uh, Pierre Zakchevsky, our cameraman, Sasha, uh, our fixer, uh, and a couple of Ukrainian soldiers who were showing us around. And we went out that, uh, that morning to film the, the defenses around the city. And that was the day, just over a year ago, a year and two days ago, that uh, we were attacked by Russian 
bombs. Uh, we're not sure if that was by a drone or by artillery. We're, we're still trying to discover that exactly, and we're dealing with war crimes investigations to figure out if the inte Ukrainian intelligence know. But that day, sadly, Pierre, Sasha, and the two Ukrainians died. And uh, I was badly injured myself. I lost uh, my right leg. I lost my left foot. Um, badly burnt, a sight for my left eye, shrapnel across the face. But um, I knew that minute after we were hit that I had to fight hard to get back. I had to fight hard to get home to my family. And I had to fight back to work as well. I believe so wholeheartedly that what we do is telling stories for our viewers, taking them around the world, um, that that's something I wanted to keep doing. And so every day since, um, first I was in Warnstuhl in the base there for 10 days recovering. Uh, then I was moved to San Antonio to BAMSI, Brook Army Medical Center, and I spent five months there learning how to walk again being given my limbs back the, that I'd lost and, uh, you know, building myself up mentally to, to come back. And uh, while I was there recovering, I wanted to, uh, I had a lot of thoughts in my mind. For the first couple of months, I couldn't move at all. And so it was about writing down what I was thinking, being honest about the struggles I was having, how difficult it was, talking about my family. And so many of those ideas started to come together and, uh, and I was lucky enough to be able to put them together in a book. Mm -hmm. And so here we are a year later I'm back with Fox, I'm back with all of my colleagues like yourself and everyone who's been so supportive all along to tell a story not only about what happened to me, but also to remember Pierre, and more importantly, to try and send a message out to all our viewers, all our audience, to anyone who's had a difficult time, that if you really have to, you can push on through, that if you need to, you, you can find a way through the darkest times. And there have been times over the last year which have been incredibly difficult for me, but I always thought that if I could do a little better the following day than I did on Monday, then I was going to get better. And I got home to my family about four months ago. And every day since then has just been about getting better, getting back to the real world and uh, doing as, as much as I can to help others who have gone through something similar to myself. This podcast is called Everything Will Be Okay, which is based on a book that I wrote a couple of years ago that was mainly geared to young women because I would do a lot of mentoring. And when they came into my office, they just filled with anxiety. And I would look at them and think, girls, everything's going to be fine. You are an educated American woman and you are loved. I, just don't be in such a hurry. And I tried to say like everything will be okay. Well, the, the title really st stuck with people. And the first day you were back, I don't know if you remember this uh, at the luncheon, you said, I believed everything would be okay. You said yeah. that. You said, I believe everything will be okay. And I think for anyone who is going through a challenge, to be able to look at you and say, if he believes that, then I should too. Mm -hmm. That's how I felt all along. I knew that no matter how hard it was, on the other side, there was always going to be hope, light, something positive. And um, one of the things that happened to me during this whole year, this recovery, was that a lot of the things that I used to be worried about, the things about work, about your career, about the minor things in life, those worries disappeared. And I realized how weighed down I was by some of them. And... Um, I, I realized what's really important. It's being with your family. It's about doing the best every day. It's about trying hard. And in some ways, in many ways, I feel stronger and more confident now than I did before because I have shed a lot of those worries of before. And I get so much pleasure from the simple, uh, small, simple things like being at home, hugging my children, being with friends and family that um, 
I've learned everything will be okay. And um, it, it's amazing because that's something that I have thought every single day since this happened. Well, it's interesting because you have an amazing wife named Alicia and you have three daughters. And it's something that parents, this phrase, everything will be okay. It's something that it's like almost usually the first thing that your parents ever mm-hmm. say to you. Yeah. As, or as a parent that you ever say to your children. It's the first thing you, you hear as a baby and then you hear it all the way throughout your life. Can we go back to that point about shedding worry and that you realized you were worried about things that didn't necessarily affect you in, in, in the big way? Th- that's so interesting. And I'm a, I'm a natural worrier. I've gotten a lot better about it. I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, uh, you know what? Ask Honor. Okay, she's a firstborn girl. Yeah. I know that you and Alicia do a ton to make sure, but firstborn girls, I think, always are a little bit of a worry wart. Not, not, I wouldn't say that's a universal, but whenever I'm in a crowd, if I ask, how many here is firstborn girl? They'll raise their hand because they all come to those mentoring sessions because yeah. they, they're driven, but they also, they worry about their futures. They worry about their friends. They worry about what other people think about them. Uh, they spend a lot of time comparing themselves to other and social media doesn't help at all, but Maybe talk a, b- a little bit about that lightness that comes from letting those worries go. And did that also change for Alicia? Like the things that she worried about, has that changed? I, it's a really interesting question. I feel that I went through that realization earlier. I realized that when I was at hospital and I was getting better every day and getting home was all that mattered. But for Alicia, those five months were incredibly hard. She was having to handle the whole family, keep the, the girls together, not that, let them worry too much. And I think that it was only when I got home and we could see that life was going to be, I say normal, but life was going to be fine and great again, that she started to realize it as well. But, um, it, you know, everyone talks about what happened to me during this, but as much as happened to Alicia and my family and people forget that. Yeah, um, you call her the hero of the book. It is. I th- honestly, the book is like a love story to her. You yeah. know, she has driven me throughout my whole career. She's made me wiser. She's made me more intelligent. And uh, she got me through this as well. Um, I mean, it, it has become simpler for me. And I think it has for uh, uh, Alicia as well. I think Alicia, before I knew it, knew that there was nothing else but family. And she taught me that as well. I think I might have been more distracted mm-hmm. with my career and a whole lot of other things. So perhaps what's happened is that I finally joined her in knowing this. You also said that she made you a better journalist mm. and more somebody who was more looking to maybe not just what was happening logistically on the ground or geopolitically, but what was happening to the people. Mm. And boy, what's happened to the people of Ukraine? Yeah, no, absolutely. And for the first few years of my career, and I was a war correspondent, I was traveling around the world. And uh, at the beginning, it was my stories were a bad adventure there about how I got somewhere, who was shooting at us, you know, how bad the destruction was. But, you know, speaking to Alicia over the years and learning from her, I realized that the true stories are how the people in the middle are being caught up, how those lives are being lost. And those are the stories that I started to focus on. And yes, that's exactly what we looked at in Ukraine when we were there, as with every other war over the last few years. Um, from the minute we got there, we were talking to some of the families who were trying to flee about the children who had lost their parents. And, um, and uh, that's happening to this day. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Ukraine and the parts of the East have been totally demolished. But that does make stories very real, particularly when you've got a family of your own, to see what's happened to other families, to see how they've been torn apart. So our job is about putting aside your own emotions, I believe that, and about focusing on the job. But that can be difficult at times. Mm-hmm. 
What does your physical day-to-day recovery look like? How much physio do you have to do? I'm still seeing physios uh, every day. I see doctors a few times a week. Uh, I'm walking quite well at the moment, but only for short amounts of time. I can walk for about 20 minutes. My burns are still quite a bit of a problem at the moment. Uh, the lower half of me is all burnt. And, um, does it hurt? It, it does the hurt, burns. yes. Mm. Um, a lot of skin grafts all over my legs, and mm. uh, those still haven't healed terribly well. So there may be some more of those to follow, but if I don't take care of them every day, then those break open again. Um, you know, my left foot uh, has bone growth in it at the moment, so in the next few weeks I'll have to have a little bit more of my foot uh, taken off. And um, that may well lead to having the whole foot removed at mm. some point. So, look, I'm doing really well. Mentally, I feel really strong. Uh, and you've just got to be open to whatever lies ahead of you. And if you let all of that upset you, then it would be very difficult. So I've just opened myself up from very early on, from the first few days when I was in Lonstool, and the doctor said, there's a lot coming your way, you know, be open to it. And that's what I've done. I've embraced it. I've realized that Every operation that happens is an operation that's going to make me better, get me better. So I look at them as positive things, not as negative things. And I'm so grateful for the doctors who carry them out. But um, that's a a real lesson that I had to learn. I talk about posture and Pilates on this a lot. And don't worry, I have passed on to Ben my Pilates recommendation. And he's heard it from others. I can't wait. (laughs) Sign me um, up. It must be fun for you to have those dinners with your children and homework. Do you like helping them with their homework? You know what? Before this happened, I was, um, I understood how important homework was, but it was like pulling teeth, you know, I'd have to sit down, let's do the homework. I, I honestly look forward to it every day. It's me and my daughters sitting together, learning, doing it together. And um, I never felt like that before. I never really appreciated it so much. That few moments where you're one-on-one with your children, and, and that's what I look forward to every day. So, no, I, I've... I enjoy a lot of the things that I used to think were just routine, just things you have to do with your children. Let's get this done. Let's do that. I look forward to them all. Oh, okay. Wait, I have a good... So now I'm going to get to some questions. I want to bring in somebody who surprised you uh, here. And this is... I'm very honored that this happened on my watch here. I'm actually going to let you introduce this very good friend of yours to the audience. This has been uh, the most exciting thing that's happened to me since since I got here. Um, in the book, I talk about some of the people who I met during my recovery. And there's an important time at Fisher House, which is when I was on the base. I'd just come out of the hospital. And for a few months, we lived there together with other people who were also being treated or who were away from home. And my closest friend there, the person I spent every day with when we weren't in operations or on the doctors, was James. And James and I... You know, we spent every day playing chess, going to see movies when we could. James was there with his wife and playing his family. Golf. Playing golf when we could as well. But I wrote about him in the book, and I said it was about the strength of these other people, and we all got through difficult times together. And I walk in here to do this podcast today, and absolute surprise to me, flown <laughs> in from Alaska today or yesterday to see me today yep. is James, and he's sitting right here now. It's good to be here, man. Welcome, James. Thank Tell you. us more about you, your, where you're from, and... Uh, how do you ended up at Bamsey? Um, so I'm actually living in Alaska right now. I've been there for about 15 years. Um, my wife was five months pregnant at the time. We flew down to visit some family in San Antonio. Um, she started having complications with birth, and they were worried about her flying home, so we got stranded in San Antonio. Uh, reached out to the Fisher House there. They let us stay there until um, she gave birth um, three months later. And during that time, we met Benji. Oh, wow. And just became fast friends. I, and you have two. You had two daughters. You have two I, daughters. I have 
four daughters. No, four daughters now. (laughs) (laughs) Go go forth and multiply. Yes, exactly, exactly. What was it like meeting and getting to know Ben at at the Fisher House, which we should give a shout-out to the Fisher House as well? Absolutely. Um, So it was an amazing experience for me because I was at a special place in my healing as well. Um, I've done a lot of uh, things with the search and rescue units in Afghanistan, so I've Mm -hmm. seen the other side of this people who were freshly injured and, and the, the bad side of stuff. So to, to be there and to see people who are missing limbs and, and thriving and surviving and with such great attitudes was so crucial to my healing as well. Um, it, it allowed me to see that there was life beyond that. And it was just, it was, it was hugely impactful for me. Because a big part of recovery, it wasn't just seeing the doctors. It was coming home to Fisher House every night. And James and I would sit and we would talk about, you know, some of our experiences, you know, adding conflict zones and how hard that was. And, you know, it's very hard to talk about some of those things to, to anyone else, to people who haven't experienced them. And I think it's a huge part of that recovery just to be open with other yep. people who have seen it and gone through it. And so I think that both of us knew that we were both trying to get trying to recover, trying to get through physically for me. And I know James had uh, you know, suffered from some PTSD yeah. in the past as well. And so the two of us were very open about what that was like. And for me, I was very watching very closely to see how mentally I, I would get through it because I was at the time was new to me and I was worried that I would obviously have some difficulties myself. And so again, talk, I was worried about you too. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we looked out for each other and that's what great friends do. You know, no matter what, you sit down, you have a chat in the evening. And so we became... I don't know, just great friends very quickly. James, when you read the book or, well, you, might, you, you knew the story firsthand from Ben. When you think about that rescue, how miraculous it's is it to you? It's nothing short of a miracle. It is Tell every, me more about that. Every step of it, is, it's even hard to put into words. It's uh, everything fell into the right place. It was. And it was so close. You, the, even though I know how it ends. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I'm reading it, and it's a page-turner of a book, and I can't wait to see the documentary that airs Fox News, on, and it will then be on Fox Nation, an extended version, on Sunday, March 19th from 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern. It'll be available after that on Fox Nation. It's a page-turner because you think, is he going to get on the train? Yeah. And he gets on the train, like, is it the train, like, is he going to get through to Landstall? And then when they get to Landstall, are you going to get, are you going to go to Walter Reed, or are you going to go to San Antonio? And... There's just so many points along the way that I think the hand of God and the really good work of and professionals. Save your allies. Yeah. Yep. Well, save our allies, which we, I'm going to talk about in the end. We should give um, everybody should donate to them because that is an amazing organization. Sarah Verado is incredible. Absolutely. But you read through and all the points along the way that could have gone wrong, and they didn't. Yeah. I think it is, that's it's um, incredible. And, like, and the Save Our Eyes, the guys who came in to pick me up when I was so injured, it will be sort of similar to what yeah. James has seen time and time again. Like right. th- those crucial moments where you only have a few minutes to go in and to get someone who's badly injured. Mm-hmm. Every single second counts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know like, we're from different sides of that. We, we both experienced that. And uh, I suppose it's another thing that we got to talk about and share. It was, it was an incredible connection. When you were in time. San Antonio at the Fisher House... Like, what was your go-to meal? Like, what did you want to eat? Them? I know that you didn't have much of an appetite, and we know we got to fatten you up a little bit. Yeah. We, we, ben lost a, too much weight. I've got a funny jock story about this, oh, actually. So okay, let's hear it. No? I don't know. Yeah, come on, let's so, hear it. So it's a go, podcast. So I was asking Jock what he wanted to cook for breakfast. Wait, wait, let's tell who, everybody who Jock is. Oh, sorry, go ahead. 
Well, Jock was our security another guard hero, yeah. in, um, in Ukraine. He was with us throughout. He was the first person to find me in hospital uh, mm-hmm. after I was injured. Uh, he evacuated alongside me, helped get me out. And then he agreed to come to Bamsi with me and stayed side by side with me. We were roommates for five months. <clears throat> he was there, basically lifted me off the floor when I fell. He yep. became like a father figure. And, just because he wanted to make sure that I got home to my family. So I, mean, I love reading better. about Jock in the book. In the book. So, yeah. okay, tell me what happened with Jock. So we were talking about what to make for breakfast that everybody would eat. He goes, have you ever heard of making an egg banjo? In a, in a Scottish accent, I'm not even going to try and do it. And I said, what in the world is an egg banjo? He goes, you know, when you eat a fried egg sandwich and you have to get it off your shirt with your thumb, it looks like you're, <laughs> looks like you're playing a banjo. He, he, he would also eat ice cream every breakfast, too, which I didn't sign up to. But Jock, you know, Special Forces was right at the top of his game, but he had to sit down for breakfast and eat his cookies and ice cream whenever he could. Did, um, did you go to the rodeo? With no, ben? no, 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 I didn't. Okay, no. that's a good. That's a good story. Yeah. That at one point on his birthday, on his 40th birthday, Ben, you went to the San Antonio Rodeo. Mm. It was one of the first days we were allowed out, and I had a couple of friends visit me from the mm-hmm. UK, and um, I remember what I wanted to do was feel normal again, go out, and I wanted to have a beer. And I remember Jock dropped us off, went to park the car, and uh, we ran up to the bar. Well, I was in a wheelchair, pushed up to the bar as quickly as we could, stood in that line, finally got to the front. I got a beer in my hand, and then sure enough, out of the background, I hear Jock, is that a beer, Benji? <laughs> <laughs> I totally busted. And I said, Jock, it's my 40th birthday. You know, come on. Just one. Beer. He said, all right, you can have the one of them. But I felt like a kid again. It was like the first time I was back into the real world. And everyone came up to me. They, they and so I wanted to ask you about that, because in the book you talk about how a lot of people at the San Antonio Rodeo came up to you and were very supportive. Did they just recognize you, or did somebody no, make an announced announcement? They announced it. They made an announcement oh, um, wow. at the rodeo. But when you're in San Antonio, I mean, it's a military city, and wherever we went, whenever we were out off the base, people were coming up to you just saying, you know, thank you for your service and thank you for what you've done. And I, I felt for the first time, I felt... Um, just so honored to be felt like I was inside the military, a military that I've covered as a journalist for many years. But to actually yeah. be there on base and to see what an incredible community of people they are was another honor, which I love doing. James, let me ask you one last question for this part of the podcast. Um, ben talked about letting go of worries after getting through that experience. And I, I hope for that kind of healing for you as well. And do you feel like you have sort of a next chapter in your life right now? Um, so, yeah, to touch on that, like I've, I've got kind of the same experience with the little things. Um, just being in the places I've been and done the things I've done, it's, it does make the little things n- not matter as much, like the little worries. So it kind of opens you up to a bunch of things. I'm still working on my, my journey as far as like finding the, the joy and stuff that Benji seems to find in everything. Um, I'm not quite there yet, but uh, mm-hmm. You're I'm, gonna I'm, get there. I'm, I'm getting there. I see sure. it in your eyes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I do. I'm getting there. Well, thanks for being a part of this Absolutely. portion of the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much podcast. for having me. James, Benji, you're, good to see you again, brother. James, you're looking good in the book. I see your picture right here. <laughs> we'll be right back with more of this interview after this. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I know, Ben, that was an amazing surprise. And there's a lot of heroes in the book, including your Fox family. We knew that they were working on it, but until you read the book, you don't realize the extent of the detail. Um, 
the 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 connection to Alicia, mm-hmm. your wife, and and to the girls, and making sure that they felt loved and that everything would be okay for them as well. Yeah, I think the we've had conversations that we wouldn't have had for a number of years with them. We had to be very open and honest with them about what had happened to me. But um, I remember being so afraid of telling them about having lost my leg and my foot. And um, I'd heard horror stories from other people who had slightly older children who said their children were just afraid to see them. They couldn't talk to them the first time they met. And so in the back of my mind as I went home in August was this uh, this fear. But uh, I'm just blessed because not for a second did they worry. They all ran and hugged me as soon as they could. Um, it took me many months to tell them that I actually lost the leg. And my wife and I, Alicia and I, sorry, told me that... Um, we talked, how should we tell them? What's the best way to tell them? Finally, we, we this big event, we were going to tell them. Uh, and we said, you know, dad, um, your daddy's actually lost lost his leg, but he's got a robot leg. And they, they thought it was the coolest thing they've ever heard. They've never worried about it uh, uh, for one bit. They tell all their friends about it. They think it's great. So we're very lucky. It is pretty remarkable, this technology, isn't it? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, I'm working my way up to a robotic ankle as well, which will oh. do a lot of the movement for me. Um, but, you know... I'm very lucky because for 20 years, sadly, there's been a lot of investment in prosthetics because of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, This has come a very long way. And there is a lot of fear at the moment that that investment is stopping. Now the wars are over. A lot of the people on the base are saying, our funding is drying up already. And they are concerned about that. So... uh, Oh, well, let's talk. We should, um, as because I know we're going to continue working together. Let's let's do some stories about that and get the awareness out there. We should. And, and I know that there was a little bit ba- of a battle as to where which hospital I would be treated in, whether it was going to be Walter Reed or Bamsey. And one of the reasons they both wanted me was because they needed their doctors to see these kinds of blast injuries. They want the young doctors to see what it's really like, and they're not getting these patients in anymore. And if in 10 years, you know, uh, I, we hope not, but there was another war and the doctors haven't seen these kind of injuries, they will have a rapid learning curve right down there. So they want their doctors, sadly, to be prepared in any, in any eventuality. So interesting. Mm. All right, I'm going to do my thing now. Good. Right, I'm Open gonna, it I'm up. Gonna, a random thing, random thing, random looking for a little p- thing here. I wrote here great detail. Oh, okay. This is. Um, I loved the story about your trip with your mother as a family. You went to... Let me just make sure I have this. This is where... You were in Laos. Yes. How do you pronounce Laos? Laos. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah I don't know. On. I'm married to a Brit, so I'm like super sensitive of like how I pronounce things. If I'm good. And you did not, you write here that you, on New Year's Eve, your mother whisked us into the dark jungle at night. We're down some tracks. We encountered some Laotian locals playing guitar and singing around a fire they had built near their huts. We did not speak their language, nor they ours. Yet we spent the next five hours singing and dancing and laughing with them like a bunch of old friends. In that time, there were only two things we all understood. Soccer and... David Beckham. <laughs> Honestly, if you sat in the middle of a jungle on the other side of the world, and the only thing you can share is David Beckham, but everyone would scream and shout, and they would all have a shot, and everyone would, would sit around together. But now that story started off because it was New Year's Eve, and the hotel had put on some sort of fancy fireworks show with the, this concert. And, you know, my mother always said, that's not what we want to do. This isn't real. This is uh, some performance. She said, let's just get out into the jungle. Let's just go start walking. And uh, 
that's what we did. And we came across this incredible group of people who were so welcoming and open to us. And I think it's one of the reasons I got into journalism. It's to tell the stories of other people, to go out and meet other people. Those are real stories. It's not what the, you know, the politicians will tell you. It's not what the hotel will put on for you. There's another hidden story behind everything. And it's looking for that that is really opening. And I think hopefully leads to being a good journalist. But mm-hmm. uh, I was blessed that my mother took us around the world. And wanted but because meet- your father, we should, we should t- touch base on your parents for a moment, because you write about your father, which we should tell i want you to tell that story in a second he gave you the i think the sense of the patriotism the discipline everything your mother i think really added to your sense of adventure and your desire to tell stories of people around the world she did yeah absolutely and and uh, i was lucky to have both of them you know my father was born and raised in manila in the philippines during the second world war he was in a japanese prison of war camp his family his, his dad was scottish mother was filipino, filipino. yeah spanish filipino. how did they meet um, my grandfather was working for a bank out in the Philippines, one of the young uh, traders out there. Wow. And, um, th- wow, what an adventure. Yeah, <laughs> even a couple of generations ago. So it goes way back. Ago. Yeah. But, you know, my, my father was 12 years old at the Battle of Manila. For four years, he'd lived under Japanese occupation. He had three siblings, and they were living in the streets of Manila, bombed out, brutal urban warfare. And he knew as the American forces came back in under uh, Douglas General MacArthur, that if they didn't make it to the American lines, the Japanese were just slaughtering everyone. And so these young kids ran through the city trying to find the Americans. And finally, at the other end of the city, there they were. And my father ran down these bombed out streets into the arms of a GI from the Buckeye Division who lifted him up and saved him. And so for my father, from the very beginning of his life, he was saved by American GIs around the world. And it led him to the U.S. He went to university in the, in the States. And then he signed up and served in Korea with the U.S. Army. And so early days, I understood that discipline, that pride, that self, that, that idea of being a proud American. And uh, he gave me that discipline. And my mother, as you say, gave me this absolute joy of life, going and finding stories no one else does, try things, meet people you would never have met. So before. you weren't afraid to travel like that. You have you. Some people have anxiety about oh, getting the passport and will they speak the language? You didn't have any of that fear. No, you'll, I love it. You'll I go love anywhere. It. I love it. I think where I'm happiest when I'm somewhere I've never been before. Always. Tell us about Rick. Rick. Rick's just another wonderful friend. And Rick and I started our careers together. We both wanted to be war correspondents. He wanted to be a war photographer. I wanted to be a war correspondent. We met in a pub in the UK. I was reading a book on Iraq. He was pulling pints. He was working there. Started talking. And I said, I'm off to Iraq in a few weeks. You want to come? And that was the beginning of many years where we ended up going to all a, a real war, you know, war zones, Somalia, Syria, Iraq. And um, he became like family to me. He's the godfather mm-hmm. to my children. And he, when this happened, he was there the next day. He was holding my children and he helped us get through this as well. But there are some people in life who just become like family members and, and he's one of them. And, um, so I mentioned I was married to a Brit. A lot of people mm. listen to this know that. Um, and I wanted you had to tell this story about when you and Rick were going to Misrata. Yeah. Libya. Where is Misrata? And what happened when... Well, you tell us what happened when when the big boat came up out of the water. Oh my goodness! So I love this story. We, we, so we were covering the conflict in Libya, but you have hundreds of journalists who are sitting in Benghazi and these other cities where there's a lot of coverage. We knew we were freelancers. We had to go somewhere no one else was reporting, and the port city of Misrata was surrounded on all sides by Gaddafi troops. And the only way to get in was to illegally get through some of the NATO blockades on fishing boats. And we tried for days. And finally, we found this little boat that was going to head into Misrata. And uh, finally, we persuaded the captain to let us get on his boat. I actually gave him my sunglasses as a final, final bribe to get us on there. 
But we get on the boat and we're bobbing around in the high seas for a while and uh, very quickly realize we're on an illegal weapons shipment. I mean, the, the boat is packed, the rafters, with RPGs, artillery, um, you know, guns and a whole lot of fighters. So we think, well, we're in at the deep end here, but off we go. We're on this little boat for the first 12, 14 hours and it's the middle of the night and we think we're approaching Misrata, which we know is under heavy attack. And we're bobbing around in the middle of the ocean and out of nowhere, this the flashlights come on from a ship behind us, this huge warship, it comes into the background. Stop, this English accent comes out. Stop, stop in the water, identify yourselves. And there we are, we know we're bla- breaking in a weapons shipment. And this captain of this little fishing boat bobs around, he doesn't know what to do, he's in his cabin and he goes, <laughs> he's asked, what have you got on board? And he goes, we have, we have food, food for the children, he says. And so, and then he realizes that he's got a British journalist on board as well. And he goes, and we have a journalist too. And he hands me the microphone and this British war, a captain of this warship says, you know, find out who I am. And he goes, what do you got on board? And I've got this one crucial moment. We've either got to say we're carrying a whole lot of illegal weapons or we've got to finish telling the story. And so, you know, for my sins, I, uh, I said, food for the children. We've got food for the children. And uh, sure enough, that out of this this big warship just said, well, better be safe out there. Off you go. And off it drifted. But there were those moments when I had to make a decision between going for the story, doing what we'd been trying to do for weeks, or um, or all getting arrested. The note I that I made in the book, I wrote Brits in all caps with an exclamation point because only you all could get away with that. Yeah. <laughs> the accent does wonders, doesn't it? It worked that day. It yeah. did. Well, he heard there was another Brit on board. He said, what, what the hell are you doing on that ship? <laughs> <laughs> um, but... There was another part, and I can't remember exactly where you were, and you may, you'll have to help me. I mentioned to you where you were running with Rick, and then you were hiding, and you were af- even afraid yep. that a drop of sweat would give your position away. Could you tell that story? Yeah, we'd been in Syria uh, yeah. for a couple of weeks, and we'd crossed deep in behind enemy lines. At like you know, middle of the night, we'd waded across rivers up to our neck, and we'd been living in the caves with the rebels, and Gaddafi forces had opened fire on them. And they found out that we were there. And um, so then we had to escape out of Syria. And we knew that Gaddafi forces were looking for us. And we spent a couple of days as they, as they traced us through the country, out on our knees at checkpoints, you know, guns to the head. Really, really dangerous, brutal stuff. But finally, we got to the Turkish border and it was nighttime. And our fixer said, look, we've made it to the border, but let's cross tomorrow. You know, it'll be safer. And I said... Again, it was wrong me, but I said, I'm not waiting. I, I'm, we've been chased for days. I just want to get it back to Turkey to where it's safe. And he said, well, we'll, we'll try. And we headed down. We climbed down this mountain carrying all our stuff. And we got to the border. We tried to cross through these, this barbed wire fence, reams of barbed wire. And sure enough, as we get to the other side, the border guard saw us. All these shouts, the flashlights on us, and the, the, they start firing at us. Rick pulls me out of the... Uh, uh, the barbed wire, and we're running through this little village. We're jumping over walls. We're trying to get away from them. And uh, finally, Rick and I pull ourselves into this barn, these, the staircase just under a barn, and hug each other. And I remember that point. I thought I might still have been in Syria. I wasn't certain because people were shooting at us. And I remember just hugging Rick, and I thought, this is it. Like, we know where to go now. If I just, middle of the night, I've just got to hug on, hold on to him. And I thought I could hear them looking for us just around the corner, really close. And I just... And I, and I sat there, I didn't even want to breathe, and I noticed this one drip of sweat working its way down my forehead, and then it dropped off. And I remember in the middle of the darkness, I moved my hand to catch this one drop of sweat that was falling because I thought it was going to give us away, but that's how on edge we were. And uh, 
We waited about half an hour, just hugging, just hoping we wouldn't be found. Um, finally, we made our way into Turkey, turn on our phones, and then turns out our fixer had been arrested. So we had to go back and turn ourselves into the border guards once we knew we were in Turkey. I ended up in a Turkish prison for the next couple of days before being deported as well. But uh, <laughs> we, we were alive. But again, it's that total faith I had with Rick. You know, the two of us did that no matter what. The uh, storytelling in the book is incredible. And that's what I wanted to make sure that on this podcast people had a chance to know. It's not the story is only is not only just about what happened on March 14th, 2022 and that and the rest of that story. The stories leading up to it and how you became who you are are really important. And you write about that experience a little bit after that. You said I understood immediately that I was a changed man. I learned that I could control my fear, even bury it, and keep moving forward into danger. I learned that the hellishness of Misrata was not enough to stop me from going to combat zones, and I learned that my normal, civilized life would never be the same again. No, this is who I was now. And I noted that because that was at that point... And then you and I had had an opportunity when you were at the State Department as our correspondent there. You'd only been there a few weeks. And Bill Hemmer had a day off. And we did a couple of days of you being the fill-in for Bill. And we co-anchored together. And I thought, too, like, this is where Ben's going to be now at the Mm. State Department. What was it like getting the call asking if you would want to go to Ukraine? (laughs) You know, the, one of the reasons we moved to the State Department, we're moving to D.C., was because Alicia and I, my wife and I, had spoken about the next step, that I couldn't keep going to war zones, that uh, it was time to be a bit more responsible. And so we moved to the State Department. We were moving to D.C. I'd, I'd been living there for a few months. But, you know, I traveled with Blinken um, when he met with Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and I'd seen those last few attempts at diplomacy to see if they could stop them invading. So we knew it wasn't going to happen and that Russia was going to invade. But... I knew I wanted to be out there. I knew that they were going to invade, and I knew that was going to be the biggest conflict that I had seen. And that's what we do. We tell the stories where they mo- matter most. And so I told Alicia, I said, I'm not going to make the call. I won't push to go. If it comes, if they ask me to go, we'll go. And so for a few days, I just sat there. No one called. <laughs> and I was thinking, You're like, checking the phone. Is this working? Right. I, I hope someone calls me. And they did. And they called and they asked if I wanted to anchor a show from out there and um, could I make the plane that evening. But I had to speak to Alicia about it. And, you know, Alicia, she was never going to say no. She knew how important it was to me and that she knew that the job was important. So, But I know, speaking to her since then, that um, she probably, you know, maybe I should, oh, who knows, should I have gone, shouldn't I have gone? Right. I don't regret right. going for a second, but um, I was pleased to be going. I was pleased to be covering the story. Tell me about the story. The other thing I marked here is the videos you would make for your children with the hedgehogs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started that before, well before this the attack, because I was traveling a lot for work. We were always on the road. And I wanted to always send the videos about where I was and what I was doing. And I started taking little toys that they had with me, these little miniature hedgehogs. And um, everywhere I went, I would take, take out a video and they would go off on some adventure and little hedgehogs would do something. They'd be with me. They'd be sitting on the plane with me. And um, when I went to hospital after the attack, that's what I continued doing. And they were sort of the way... You have which, them in your pocket when you were in the hospital? Yeah, I had them by my bedside every single day. And they were sort of a way in which I could tell my daughters what was going on without having to show them all of my injuries and myself. So the hedgehogs would pass on these stories. 
and they've become a real part of uh, of our lives together. And the, the hedgehogs go wherever I go now. But on page ninety nine, you talk about you and Pierre visiting a children's hospital, mm. and one of the hedgehogs remains. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's it's amazing. It was a couple of days before the attack. Pierre and I were filming in this Ukrainian hospital, and all the children had been evacuated. But down the end of one long corridor, there was a light on in a room. And just when we were going to leave, I said, I said, Who, who's in that room? Why is that one room on? And most of the lights were in the hospital or off to save electricity. So just one room at the end with light coming out of the door. And I said, can I go and have a look? And there was one baby in there, this young little baby who they'd called Prince Charlie, who had been, uh, had su been a surrogate. And the, mm. he'd had some couple of medical issues. And so the British parents who were going to take him refused to take him. So this child was only a couple of weeks old, had nowhere to go, had no paperwork, and he was just stuck there. And Pierre and I filmed this baby. We got hundreds of requests from our viewers that night about who, um, about if anyone could ad adopt him. Um, but in the same hospital, we also met this girl who had almost lost her leg in an explosion. And for the first time ever, I wanted to give her something. I wanted to give her one of the hedgehogs. And uh, I'd never thought about doing it before. And I said, look, this is my, my daughter's favorite toy. And I just know they'd want you to have it. Her mother had been killed as well in the attack. Mm. And I just remember, so here we are a couple of days before the attack itself. And I was surrounded, A, by this baby, A, by this girl who had lost everything. And I just wanted to give her something, something. Uh, that one of the three hedgehogs is what I, what I left her. It's amazing. And we don't know what happened to Prince Charlie. Prince Charlie is safe. It, oh, Tell me more. I can't tell you very much. Okay. Um, but Prince Charlie is safe. He's got a family. He's outside Ukraine and he's been adopted. Um, so, yeah, I, I went back and looked for him too. Wow. Because we had talked about possibly helping him ourselves. Wow. Um, because of a whole lot of adoption rules, there's nothing we can't say very much. But he, Prince Charlie, uh, I'm is totally blown away. Safe. I know. I know. And Pierre was thinking of adopting. Prince I read Charlie that. Too. I know. And he, he didn't have children of his own, no, correct? No, right. he didn't. Um, oh, my gosh. No, I know. Isn't that, this is the best ne news. Never made it. We didn't make it into the book. I only recently found out. So. Uh, and the good news is? Prince Charlie is safe. He's wow. well. He's recovering. Okay. I'm not going to ask more detail, but I'm thrilled to hear it. Wow. Adoption is such a special, yeah. special kind of love, which we've actually talked about on this season of the podcast as well. More to come right after this. A couple more, and I'm going to let you go. There's on page 228... You talked about you know having to rely on people, including they had to bathe you because you weren't able mm. to do it. I love the answer to this question. They would ask you, which music did you want to hear? And what was it? <laughs> well, I figured I was in Texas. I should learn everything I wanted to, uh, all the music down there. And so I spent a while, every day I'd say, uh, they'd wheel me in on these big metal plates. I mean, showers were not nice. You couldn't move. Your wounds were open. You Ouch. were there. Horrible. But I'd say, put on the music, put on the country music. And so we sat there and I just started working my way through Johnny Cash, Stapleton, you know, Eric Church. And, you said um, Tim McGraw, George Strait, Johnny yeah, Cash. Yeah, um, a whole lot of them. I really love that. And um, Bill, of course, Hemmer, of course, has been had, had his uh, country music. What did you think of his uh, playlist? i got to say I like it. It wasn't some of the text and stuff I'd be listening to as much, but uh, no, I like it too. So it was new to me, and I wanted to learn something every day. That was the point. I didn't want to go back. I wanted to learn something new. And I said, play me what you love. Tell me what you love doing and what you love listening to. And so every day they'd say, hey, we've got something great for you to listen to today. 
and uh, got me through some of the hardest times. And that's something else I learned is even when things are really hard, really tricky, find one little thing that you love, that you enjoy and, and hold on to that and look for it and let that give you some light. Let that encourage you. Um, and in those horrible times, country music did it for me. Another thing you and I had bonded over was our love for our dogs. Mm -hmm. And I remember our Before We Go that day on America's Newsroom when you co-anchored with me, we talked about your dog and my dog at the time was Percy. Percy mm -hmm. was now on the scene. Uh, your dog is Bosco. Bosco, yes. And I'm sure that you know, Bosco doesn't understand time. But when he saw you... No, no. I mean, there was a... Unlike he'd ever been before. I mean, Bosco was right up there with my three daughters. You know, I couldn't right. stop him getting so excited. And uh, they're part of the family. They really are. You know, you raise Tell me them. about Huckleberry. Oh, Huckleberry was a Labradoodle. And he was one of the therapy dogs at Bampsy down in San Antonio. And, you know, I worked very hard to keep my emotions straight, to work hard throughout all of this. And then one day we were in the gym and I met Huckleberry, beautiful little dog. And Chris is the lady, uh, you know, who owns him, who brought him in quite often. And uh, the first time I met Huckleberry, I'd been having a tough day and I was, had my legs off and I was sitting at the edge of this little bench and Huckleberry walked up to me, looked me in the eyes and he dropped the board at my feet. And I picked it up and I threw it to the end of the, uh, of the gym and he went running, brought it back, dropped it again, just like Bosco would have done. And for the first time since I got to Bampsy, I couldn't stop crying. I just, the tears just came flowing out. It was both a whole combination of what I missed at home, but how I knew that it was still there and it was going to be there when I got home. And tiny little thing like a dog, it was Huckleberry who really yeah. brought those emotions out because you and your dog, it's something so personal, it's something just so normal and realistic at home and it, it just triggered something inside me and I couldn't stop. I think I must have cried for five, five, ten minutes mm -hmm. straight and I just let it all out and yeah, sometimes it's quite good to do that too, you know you yeah. hold it inside for so long and I just had so much pent up and I just I let it all, all loose. And, so and that's I, why they call them therapy dogs. They are. And they're yeah. very valuable. Yep. And we have a good friend who used to work here, Jennifer Williams, who was mm. the executive producer mm. of uh, the Daily Briefing show I did. Uh, she raises the puppies that then, you know, she has to, at, at 18 months, Very hard. she has to give them away. Yeah. But she does it because her brother, at one point in his life, needed a therapy dog. And he said, but other people need them more. And she said, well, then I'll raise one. And so she's done this consistently. So we it's true. And sometimes you don't need to... To, to talk or to speak to someone to get that kind of therapy. There's something just so natural about sitting there with a dog who has no questions for you, who just wants to sit alongside you and be with you. There's something really comforting and homely about it. Yeah. Um, and so I, again, encourage you know, incredible groups out there who bring these therapy dogs around. One of the things that we love is your voice. Uh, you have an amazing BBC special voice. <laughs> um, and one of the things I asked you that I didn't know and I want to make sure everybody knows is that Ben reads... The audiobook that takes a lot of time and effort, and they wanted you to slow down, and that's so annoying when they ask you to well, slow down. I know, and I kept saying to them, like, that's not how I usually speak. Yeah. You know, I'm, I usually speak a lot faster than that, but they said, no, no, people <laughs> But you read relaxing. the audiobook, and it is such a special book. Um, I recommend books all the time, and I, I, I'm going to let you go because there's so much to do here. But before I do, let's, I think that we have to make an appeal to people to support Save Our Allies. Yes. Tell yeah. everyone about them. Save Our Allies is just an incredible group who goes to help people caught up in conflict zones around the world. And they really, um, a lot of people will know them from the work they did in Afghanistan when it fell in, around August 21. And um, they went in, 
they saved thousands. I, I want to say 11, 12,000 people, allies, you know, American allies and American citizens who couldn't get out because of the chaos that was happening. And they went in, some of them risking their own lives to go in. They're all uh, former military and um, they knew exactly what they were doing and they saved lives. And then when it came to the to what happened to me, they had a team across the border in Poland. Jen Griffin, our Pentagon correspondent, incredible lady, picked up the phone, called Sarah Verado, said, look, we've got, we've got some, a problem here. We need to find someone and get them out of Ukraine. Can you do it? And straight away, she said, we've got the best team here. And within seconds, they were looking for me. They had all the details about me. And in they went to try and find me and save me. And they did it because I'm an American citizen and they said, there's an American who needs help right now. We will risk our own lives and do whatever we have to to go and save him. And a whole team of them came in uh, to bring me home to my children. And I tell the story in the book of a number of the people who came in, uh, their own experiences in Afghanistan and, the, the, you know, and what they've done in their careers. And there they were to save me as well. And they are still helping allies get out of Afghanistan now. You've got safe houses across Pakistan. They're still trying to save people who risked their own lives to help us when we were at there at war. They are amazing. They are people who do want to do this because they believe in doing good. They just believe in saving people. They just believe that that's how we've got to treat each other. And they other. don't waste a dollar. No. That's nope. the other thing. You can, If you decide to donate to save our allies, you can be assured it is money very well spent. Yeah, incredible team of people. And that included Saving You. And the book is called Saved, A War Reporter's Mission to Make It Home by Benjamin Hall. Thank you. Thanks. So nice to see you, Dana. It has been so meaningful for all of us here at Fox News to have this chance to reconnect with Ben Hall. We are very excited about what is next for him here at the channel because his work is unparalleled, but you can also see that he's an incredible human and he makes us all better people. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts. Leave us a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. A war reporter's mission to make it home is Benjamin Hall's gripping memoir. He was on the front lines of the war in Ukraine when tragedy struck. Our correspondent Benjamin Hall was injured while news gathering in Ukraine. Two of our co-workers have died. Cameraman Pierre Zakshevsky and journalist Alexandra Kushinova. Now, Benjamin Hall is detailing his ground-level view on the atrocities of war. Saved. A war reporter's mission to make it home. Order today at foxnewsbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.